Good morning, church. Please turn me, with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. We are still studying Revelation, and as I said, by God's mercy, we will conclude on Easter morning. But today we look at verses 9 through 27 of Revelation chapter 21. If you're new with us, that's in the back of the Bible. It's the very last book of the Bible. <clears throat> and John has given us four visions. This is the final one, the king celebrating his church, the king conquering all our enemies and bringing us into the fulfilled kingdom. I don't expect you to remember this, but in chapter 17, there was the beginning of the third vision. Chapter 17 uh, has a similar invitation, come with me, he says, in verse 6, come with me, I'm going to show you what is to happen. And he takes him down into a valley of conflict, and it's the beginning of conflict that we read about for the next several chapters. And it's demoralizing to John, it's frightening, it's terrifying, it can be hopeless. And John expresses that fear as he's looking at his enemies face to face. He's in the valley of the conflict, in the valley of the battle. He's overwhelmed by the enemies of the people of God. A similar invitation is given in Revelation 21. Come up here. Come up here and let me show you something. From a mountain, great and high. Come out of the valley. We're not going to pretend that the conflict is over. I just want to give you a different perspective. You have this perspective when you're in the middle of the battle. Here is the perspective from my throne. And here is where you will gain perspective that leads to hope and courage. It's an accurate perspective. It's the one we need today, isn't it? We need to be drawn out of the valley, not to deny that the valley is there, that the conflict is there, but we need to come up to this mountain, to the throne of Christ, to the mountain great and high, and see the, 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 the battle, the conflict, not from our human, limited, finite perspective, but from Jesus' perspective, the perspective of the one who is winning, and from the Jesus who wins. Let's begin reading Revelation chapter 21, <clears throat> verse 9. <clears throat> then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of seven last plagues and spoke to me again saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. <clears throat> he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. On the west, 
three gates and the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper. While the city was pure gold like clear glass, the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will never, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. One of my favorite authors is Hampton Sides, and though I haven't read this book entirely, I can tell it's a great one, another great one, Kingdom of Ice. It's about the USS Jeanette sailed from San Francisco in 1879, sailed north on the presumption that there was a warm water passageway through the ice that uh, would allow you to get to a, a polar sea on the cap of the world. Uh, Lieutenant George DeLong was the captain. And he was operating on maps that he had gained from a scholar named August Heinrich Petermann. Petermann very confidently said, if you just get north of Siberia, you enter into a warm water channel, take you straight to the polar sea, sail around up there, come back, everything will be rosy. When they got just north of Siberia, they encountered ice not just an occasional floating iceberg, but real ice that ended up crushing the walls of the, of the, of the vessel, crushing the ship and killing almost everybody aboard. Hampton Side said when they got north of Siberia, those who survived had to do this. 
they had to shed their organizing ideas in all of their unfounded romance and replace them with the reckoning of the way the Arctic truly is. They had to shed their minds of all the organizing ideas, the romance of the way they wanted things to be, and embrace the way the Arctic really is. There is no warm water passage. There is ice that will crush and kill you. It's a similar, it's a very insightful sentence into the way we must face living. And we must not face it the way we want it to be, the way we want our life to be, the way we want our identity to be, the way we want the world to be, the way we, we dream that it is. But instead embrace the world as it is described by, prescribed by a heavenly Father, a gracious and kind and merciful Savior who writes his word to us, not to ruin our fun, not to demoralize us, but so that we will thrive. Yes, he does tell us some things that disappoint us, some things that will rock your world, some things that will, that will aggravate and even offend you, but he never does so in order to ruin your life. He tells you truth to save you. He tells you truth to bring you to life. And he tells you that this world is not all there is. You don't have to settle for it. You don't have to just make up some kind of coping uh, uh, philosophy in order to get through this life. He says, this life, this world is not what it's supposed to be. It's broken. It's not fitting in my, according to my will, but I have preserved mercy in it. But and don't lose hope. I'm taking you to a perfect world. And you, he says, this is the truth about you. Yes, you're a sinner. You're in need of mercy. You're in need of the blood atonement of Jesus Christ. But I tell you that not to humiliate and ruin your self-esteem. I tell you that, that I might heal you, that I might start the work of sanctification, that I might move you to the place where you become who you were created to be. You don't have to settle for this broken form of yourself. You don't have to reinvent an identity for yourself. I have better news for you. This is not just coping news. It is news that will cause you to flourish and to thrive. Jesus announces in this passage the kingdom that is not only, that is, that is not only coming, but it has come. The kingdom, yes, that is to come in perfection, but it is arriving already, and he is bringing us into it. And that kingdom, he says, is so great that the announcement of it can be called gospel, good news. Good news that this kingdom provides safety. This kingdom alone is true. This kingdom alone is beautiful, and this kingdom alone is glorious. Isn't that what you're longing for? Yes, that is what God has made you for. Even if you're not a believer today, if you haven't received Christ as your Lord and Savior, there is a longing put in your conscience by God, a wooing 
by which he is saying, this is that for which you've been made. Don't settle for your definition of life or definition of personhood. Come to my kingdom. Oh, we could preach forever on this theme, but we've got to serve the Lord's Supper here in a minute. So just four points, just four points in a briefer fashion. Safety. We long for safety. You don't have to go anywhere in this world, especially in Memphis, to look for how, lo- how we long for safety. We have gates and fences everywhere, all kinds of locks, all kinds of defense mechanisms and security systems. And it's bound up in who we are ever since Adam and Eve rebelled against God. We have been looking for searching out safety. When they tried to find satisfaction and security outside of the God with whom they had been intimately related, when they tried to find it anywhere else, they lost that that safety, that security that God had given them. And so they run into the bushes and they try in vain to cover their nakedness. Ever since then, we are a fearful people. Psychologists tell us that our default setting is not security and then we fall into anxiety and depression, but rather our default setting is fear. And we learn ways of coping by familiarity, but our default setting when props are taken away from us is always fear. That goes back to Adam and Eve. But look what is promised in perfection in that kingdom which is to come. There will be no intruders, verse 25. You won't even have to have a gate or a door to shut at night, and there will be no night. There will just be day. There will be no traitors, verse 27. There will be no people who promise that they're on your side during the day or promise that they're friendly in one moment and then turn their back on you and take out your security the next. No, he says in verse 27, there will be no detestable or false person there. What would it look like if we lived in the, con- the conviction that we're utterly safe. That in this world, even though it's with devils filled and the devil threatens to undo us, our God is a mighty fortress around us. He can't take away our salvation. He can take away our goods, take away our self-esteem. He can take away our livelihood, He can take away our life, but He can't destroy us forever. What would it look like to live with abandon, with a kind of sanctified recklessness in this world that Jesus is my security? There's no one more intimidating than someone who has lost the ability to be intimidated. Don't we see it in those brave Ukrainians, something else that President Putin did not, didn't calculate is what happens when you try to intimidate a people who are not able to be intimidated, who are not afraid of dying. It looks like a 
a Harriet Tubman, enslaved in the 1820s, found her, found her liberty, was able to make a 90-mile passage to freedom, but didn't stay in that place. She went back and saved hundreds and hundreds of slaves in the Underground Railroad. What was the secret? Why was she afraid? She wasn't afraid to die. She wasn't afraid to live courageously. Thomas Garrett, the great abolitionist, said, I never met any person of any color who had more confidence in the voice of God as spoken directly to her soul. Sometime, one time somebody said, how in the world did you become such a brave woman? And she said, twant me, twas the Lord. I always told him, I trust you. I don't know where I'm going or what I'm doing, but I expect you to lead me. No one could threaten her, intimidate her, because she wasn't afraid to die. She trusted in her Lord. We are going to be in a kingdom that will be utterly safe, but there's no need to live as a coward now until you get there. We can live courageously now knowing that He will safely guide us through. He will give us all the days He's numbered for us, and no one can take our life or our livelihood until God says it's okay. And if He does, it'll still be okay. Second characteristic of this kingdom is not just safety, <clears throat> it is truth. Verses 22 to 24, I'm working backward through the passage because there's the dramatic beginning of this end time picture. Verse 22 to 24 tells us that Jesus is the truth and this kingdom that we are in. This person is true. This, this kingdom is true because this person we're following is true. Where do I get that? In two images, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, the Lamb. The temple in the Old Testament was an outpost of heaven. It was a visible demonstration of the invisible presence of God. It was a collapsing of the divide, the supposed divide, between earth and heaven. It was an anticipation of the coming of Christ when God Himself would show up in the flesh and there would not be a need for a physical temple because what the physical temple was representing is now realized in the person of Jesus. This truth of this kingdom means that Jesus is truly present with us, even when we can't see Him. It's a remarkable, inexplicable comfort for those who are Christians to know the presence of Jesus. This week I talked to one of our members who lost a family member, and it was a very difficult, very painful thing for her. It reminded her of past painful deaths, and she said, but you know what is true? You know what comforts me is the presence of Jesus. Now, when we say that to somebody who doesn't know the Lord, it sounds crazy. What do you mean the presence of Jesus? I don't see the presence of Jesus. What is it, a feeling? What is it? We can't explain it. As Pascal said, the heart has its reasons, the reason knows not of. 
Just because you can't objectively demonstrate something doesn't mean that it's not true. And it is absolutely true. When you are a believer reconciled to Jesus Christ, a personal relationship with him, yes, he's at the right hand of the Father, but he, let, he sent the Holy Spirit, he said, so that we would not be comfortless and so that we would know that he is present with us at all times to the end of the age. He is present with us. He is the temple. We have become the temple, the outpost of heaven, the true presence of God. Secondly, the true presence of Jesus is guaranteed in his person. It is his person, verse 24, that makes trueness possible in this world. Why is there any truth? Why is there anything that is reliable? The Bible says that in him all things consist. We typically think of the planets. We typically think of why an atom holds together. Well, it's Jesus. He is the ultimate mysterious force. Why is the periodic table predictable? Why, why is it possible to walk across the earth and not fly up into the skies? Why, is, why are the gases in the, in, the, in the world perfectly balanced to maintain life? Why are the planets maintained in their orbits? It's ultimately because Jesus is the truth. Why is there this ability we have to identify something is true and something is false? Why is there this general principle that allows humanity to continue in the world even though there are despots and evil people and, evil and, and, uh, and fallen forces all over the world trying to kill us? How is any of this possible? How are there, how are there laws of logic? How is there capability of a, a number of nations deciding that you just can't run across the border of a sovereign nation and in and, 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 and conquer it even just because you decide? How is that possible? How is truth possible at all? Only because there is a person in whom is contained truth. Jesus is the answer to our quest for trueness. Not only is he the standard of truth, that truth is present with us in a person. It's what we long for. The kingdom of God in relationship with Jesus alone promises it. Thirdly, this kingdom is characterized by beauty. Verses 12 to 19. Great redundancy here of numbers. Three gates, 12 foundations so on. These are not literal measurements. This is the description of perfection, completeness. We've said all along, 12 apostles are uh, 12 uh, times 12 uh, uh, squared for the perfection of the number of God's people. These are numbers of completion. This is the beautiful symmetry of the kingdom of God. Don't we long for that? Don't we long for something that is, that is perfect, that is proportional, that is complete? 
This is what is promised in the kingdom of God. We begin to taste it even now. There are those moments, as I said a few weeks ago, when heaven breaks through and we say, this is the way I was meant to live. I wish this could continue forever. This is a, this is a taste of the completeness, the perfection that is to come. You long to be completed yourself. You know that there are, there are gaps in who you are. You're frustrated with your own inconsistency. There are things you dream for your loved ones and for others. And you, 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 when will this deep desire of mine ever be fulfilled? It's coming. Completeness is coming. It's beautiful. It's not only beautiful because it is complete, it's beautiful because it's extravagant. You know, we've come to believe that um, Spartanism, minimalism, uh, or uh, frumpiness is a mark of spirituality. This, this idea that, uh, you know, we don't want to invest too much around us, especially in the church, church building grounds. We've come to believe that that, uh, that, that projecting frumpiness or imperfect, that's a mark of spirituality. It used to be that when people would settle a new community, they would build the most extravagant building as their house of worship, and then they would live in houses that were much less impressive. Our culture has completely flipped. We spend all of our extravagance on our homes, and then in many places we we say the church should get our leftovers. I'm grateful for our forefathers and foremothers who said the sanctuary should be beautiful. And we should put some flowers around so that we project to the world. We believe in a beautiful kingdom. But it's not just in a building. It's in the way we live. Do we live and relate in such a way that the world says, you know, that really is, that's beautiful. That really is good news. And it's better news than what I have in my own life. The extravagance, the prodigality of the decoration of God's kingdom, whole gates made out of pearls, we're not going to be wringing our hands saying they should have spent that money somewhere else. God is full of extravagant beauty. He wants this to come out in our lives, especially the way we relate to each other. I pastored, a, there was a young man in my church once, 13 years old. He was a member of our church, a brand new member of our church and, a, and in the Christian school and great athlete, <clears throat> typical boy, and a boy, the kind of boy I was at times, very hard to love, not perf perfect in his family, not, didn't have a lot of money, weren't the socialites of the community sometimes hard to love like the rest of us. This boy got sick. 
picture of health, got sick, went in the hospital, stayed there several weeks, diagnosed with a, a rare blood disorder. For weeks, he languished in the hospital. And a miracle happened. I say a miracle. Nobody coordinated it. Kids from all different schools, schools that weren't supposed to like each other, would come and hold vigil in that, in that, uh, in, in that waiting room and pray. People from churches, all kinds of churches, churches that are not supposed to get along with each other, would come and hold vigil and pray. Rich and poor, black and white, African-American surgeon embracing the white anesthesiologists, both Christians, holding each other around the shoulders and grabbing the family and praying for a miracle of God. It was something that could not have been orchestrated. People lining up, giving blood for this boy they didn't even know. And he died. The same community lamented, grieved, and worshiped. People that worked in that hospital started asking the Christian healthcare givers who had been witnessing to them to say, Tell me that story again about Jesus and eternal life and the coming kingdom. One young, uh, newer pediatric intensivist who was very content in her atheism, pretty smug about her academic and educated intellectual approach to life, went to one of the professors who had been witnessing to her over the last year or so and said, I want to go to church with you. Well, that's wonderful. What, what has changed in your mind? And she said, I didn't think that the beauty I saw was possible in this world. The beauty I saw. Not the beauty created by a program or even a church, but a beauty created by the Holy Spirit hovering over Members of the kingdom of God, give yourself to that kind of beauty. Expect it. Ask of yourself. In the way I'm relating here, is this beautiful enough to, to reflect the gospel? Am I believing and projecting the goodness of the good news of this kingdom? And finally, this kingdom, this kingdom is glorious. Save the best for last, verses 9 through 11. Come up here, I want to show you this, he says. <clears throat> he carried me away in the Spirit, verse 10, to a great high mountain, showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God as its radiance. A most rare jewel. What is the glory of God? It's one of those big words and concepts in the Bible that will take all of eternity to explore. I don't know of any earthly writer who's written with more insight on it than C.S. Lewis in that old sermon from 1942 in the middle of World War II. He writes a sermon. He preaches a sermon 
that could be seen to be so impractical and irrelevant. Don't you know we're at war? Don't you know that we're at world war? Don't you know that the whole world is melting down? Yes, it's time to meditate on the weight of God's glory over against the temporality and the flightiness of the kingdom of evil. Lewis says at least two things pretty simply. One is what glory is not. He said typically we, we just pass over this word glory, the glory of God. What is it? It's luminescence. It's brightness. It's shininess. Lewis says, I don't know about you, but I don't have any, any joy in the anticipation that I'm going to be a light bulb someday. The others say, well, glory, the glory of God, it's His fame. Yes, now you're getting at something. Now you're getting at the biblical picture. And with the help of John Milton and Thomas Aquinas and Samuel Johnson and others, he said, yes, it is the full revelation of God's fame, but in a way you would never guess that the glory of God's fame will be realized and the honor He bestows on you and me. It's what Paul means when he says, All things are moving. All of history is moving toward the praise of His glorious grace. What do we deeply long for? We deeply long for identity. We deeply long to be known. We deeply long to be welcomed. We deeply long to be loved even after someone knows all the worst about us. And we'll never find it totally in this life. But if Jesus Christ is your Savior and He covers you with His righteousness, when you arrive in heaven, you will be known, welcomed, honored. As Lewis says, you will be an ingredient in the happiness of God. That's where we're heading if you're on the gospel path. So let the Spirit take us by means of this supper, especially take us out of the valley of conflict, thinking that we're losing the battle, we're being overwhelmed by it. Let Him take us up to a mountain great and high and see the truth. Craig Keener, New Testament scholar, has created an encyclopedia of miracles attested to by eyewitnesses. He has a whole section on angelic appearances and a subsection on angelic appearances to unbelievers. Now, there's several, lots of versions of stories seen by unbelievers out there, and they may be true, but This is one that is verified by two witnesses. The one who talks about it was was a man named Rolf Serdahl. He was the president of World Missions for Evangelical Lutheran Church. And when he was a missionary in China, 
he said that a friend of his was a missionary in a, in a, in a, a neighboring region where there were intense wars. And every village was falling one after another by this takeover of one warring uh, group against another, except this one village, this one town never fell. It never fell to the, to the uh, aggressors. The missionary, a missionary who lived in that town was taken hostage to try to bring the town down. They never could. And after the war was over, the officers told the hostage, a U.S. citizen, he said, they said, now you, you tell us, tell us now that the war's over. Now tell us, why did you build that new wall around the town and guard it with those people with the, those bright, shiny clothes? We never could get into that town because you built that new wall and then you put people around it with these, these shiny clothes that were intimidating. He said, there are a lot of Christians in that town, and we were praying for God to protect us, but we never built a wall. There was no wall around the town. The shiny ones must have been the angels protecting us. That kind of story can tend to make our skin tingle to say, wow, that is unbelievable. It's not, it shouldn't be unbelievable. It shouldn't be unbelievable. It's truth. It's the reality as God sees it. Occasionally, gives us a peek to see it, maybe even unbelievers to see it. Jesus and His mighty angels are waging war against all of His and all our enemies. We are absolutely safe even if we die. And His kingdom will come. His will will be done. Jesus will when the only question is, are we going to live like we believe it?